Thanks for checking out this sermon at New Beginnings. As a church, we exist to become an authentic, biblical community. That transforms our city and impacts the world. With the gospel of Jesus Christ. We want to make you aware of a few things before we begin. First, we would love to connect with you on our website. NBBCTX.org. There you can find more information about who we are. Additional resources and links to our social media network. As well as an opportunity to give. To what God is doing in and through our church. We hope you enjoy this message. Good to see all of you here this morning. My name is Connor Bales. I serve as one of the lead pastors here at New Beginnings and on behalf of our entire staff, I want to welcome you to worship uh, with us today. If you're a guest here, maybe celebrating uh, one of our families that has uh, been dedicated today, welcome. We are especially glad to have you uh, in worship with us. Today is the third week of a sermon series that you just saw introduced entitled, Let Me Explain. The genesis of this series is that we wanted as followers of Jesus Christ to be able to well articulate the why behind our what. And uh, we want to be able to grab a friend or a family member by the hand and when a, when a question or subject matter that culture is grappling with comes up in conversation, we want to be able to say, well, let me explain what we believe God's Word brings to bear on that particular subject. And, and don't you think it's imperative that as followers of Christ, we be able to tenderly and wisely, but most importantly, biblically, um, give the why behind our what? And, and so that was the idea. And, and the first week of our sermon series really began with the anchor point or our foundation for our faith and the why we believe the what we believe. And that was, let me explain why I believe the Bible. We talked about the Bible being the inspired word of God, that the Bible is a reliable uh, ancient text that God has divinely preserved for us, that it is authoritative for our lives. It is what you and I can anchor ourselves in, and ultimately that it's transformational in our hearts, that the Bible does a work, because the Bible's going to say about itself that it's living and it's active. The more you read the Bible, the more your Bible reads you. And so that was the anchor point or the beginning for this series. Last week we said, uh, let me explain why I believe Jesus is the only way. And with all of the varied conviction uh, in culture and the world at large about how a person can be saved and does a person need to be saved, we argued for the, the biblical position of Jesus Christ as the only name under heaven by which men uh, can be saved. And, and that leads me to our conversation today. And let me explain why I believe in God's design for family. And it's appropriate that we're having this conversation today because we are celebrating uh, Mother's Day. And how many of you, uh, mostly probably men in the room, would acknowledge that you struggle when it comes to following instructions. Would anybody be honest? Listen, we're in church. You don't, we don't lie in here, okay? Anybody be honest say you struggle with following instructions? Okay, I can remember uh, a few years ago when my oldest daughter, Catherine, uh, was, was three or four years old. She got a toy car uh, for her birthday. And, and uh, it was one of those cars, like a Flintstone car, you know, it's like a little tykes, but you make it go with your feet. And, uh, and of course, who needs the instructions for that? No one. And so I, I threw the instructions away because I, I don't need the instructions. So I started assembling the car, put the doors on, put the wheels on, and I sat the car up on its, on its end, and I was getting ready to install the roof. And forever, my daughter drove that car looking out of the rear windshield, okay, <laughs> because I didn't read the instructions. Uh, uh, in a, uh, next Sunday night, we're going to have the opportunity as a church 
to go and to celebrate a big baptism uh, of celebration between both of our campuses will be at Shivers, uh, and it's going to be a lot of fun. One of the cool places, uh, one of the cool things about that particular place is that it's got all this outdoor seating, and it's a, kind of a place for family fun. And, and so there's cornhole if you can play. If you know how to play, it's a lot of fun. And you take bean bags and throw them on the board and try to slide them into the hole, keep score against your opponent. And uh, can you imagine if you were trying to play cornhole with steak knives? I said that in the earlier service, and some junior high boys were like, yes. And I'm like, no, that's not yes. Uh-uh. Listen, wouldn't you all agree that, that while we don't always follow instructions, it's important that we have them? And, and our culture is deviating from God's instruction. It is moving away uh, from something that it, it actually did not create. Our culture is attempting to redefine what God alone has first defined. And, and I want to present to you what I believe are catastrophic results that would reveal this to be true. Let me give you some data just to help support this thesis that I'm, that I'm bringing to your attention this morning. In regard to the subject of marriage, according to a Gallup poll in 2018, 76% of Americans viewed divorce as morally acceptable and 20% as morally wrong. In another Gallup poll, 67% of Americans believe marriages between same-sex couples should be recognized, and you can compare that to 68% in 1996 who believed that same-sex marriages should not. Um, according to the National Center for Health Statistics, the marriage rate in the United States is dropping from 9.8 per 1,000 people in 1990 to 6.9 per 1,000 people in 2017. The institution of marriage is being devalued. And in 2017, 39.8% of all births in America were to unwed mothers. How about the family? How is the family being affected by the uh, culture moving away from God's instruction? According to the United States Department of Health and Human Services, over the past 30 years, the birth rate in the United States has been in steady decline. In 2017, there were 11.8 births per 1,000 people, compared to 16.7 births per 1,000 people in 1990. The United States Census Bureau reported that in 2018, the number of children living with a single parent was 19.65 million. By the way, 16.4 living with a single mom alone. Compare that to number, number to 1970 when it was 8.2 million. According to Rutgers University, 15 to 20% of children entering the child welfare system have a parent who is currently incarcerated. And that same study indicated there are more than 120,000 mothers and 1.1 million fathers who have a child under the age of 18 who are currently serving a prison sentence somewhere. So you understand that our culture is deviating, attempting in, a, in and of themselves to redefine what they have not first defined and the results speak for themselves. The stability and the value of the family is eroding in our culture and world today. And, and I want to submit to you that I do not believe that this shift is accidental. I believe that this shift is purposeful and is proving itself to actually be quite successful. Let me see if I can articulate this. Um, I watched a lecture recently by theologian and pastor named Vodi Bauckham. And uh, Vodi uh, presented this argument talking about the shift in culture regarding the, the value of the nuclear family. 
or God's design. And, and here's what he contended. There's a three-pronged strategy that secularists or uh, our, our culture at large has uh, implemented in, in how they're going to shift uh, people's thinking from what was originally intended to what we are experiencing uh, t- today. And, and, and that three-pronged approach is first the desensitization of these uh, particularly uh, difficult subject matter. So I, I don't know how many of you uh, watch TV regularly, but you might notice some of the commercials for national jewelry chains. Even recently, they've been a lot of commercials because it's Mother's Day, you know, so get her something special uh, for, for mom. Well, if you watch those around sporting events, they're geared more toward a predominantly male audience. And so historically, they've been commercials that have displayed uh, um, uh, husbands or, or boyfriends getting things for their wife or for their girlfriend. But if you'll pay attention, almost always today, one of the couples that is being symbolized in that commercial is a same-sex couple. So again, it's an effort to desensitize this idea that runs in contradiction to an original design. The second prong of this three-pronged approach is called jamming, what Vody Bauckham calls jamming. And, and culture is attempting to jam Christians. And here's the idea, that there is a group that would argue um, that uh, 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 couples uh, of the same sex that are vying for a recognition of their marriage and unable to do so are suffering the same plight of people of color who are being disregarded by prejudice and bias simply because of their race. So it is equating um, marriage discrimination with racism. And as a result, when those two things are being contended for as the same, where the Bible specifies one is clearly wrong, that's racism, and the other is outside of God's design or not right, and that is same-sex union, then the Christian who is attempting to respond is being jammed. What are we supposed to do? And that leads to the third prong, which is full conversion. So desensitize, jam, and convert. In other words, drip so much of this into our culture and into our everyday existence that it becomes normative. I'm going to tell you, as a 42-year-old husband and dad of five children, my kids will never know a day where the subject of same-sex relationships is not normative. So I would argue it's working. And this is where we find ourselves as disciples of Jesus Christ who hold high God's word in this conundrum with the question of how are we supposed to respond? In other words, what is our calling to engage? Well, the Bible speaks clearly to this, and it gives essentially a, a warning to followers of Jesus. There's a, a warning instruction for you and I when engaging and, and, and living within a fallen uh, world on how you and I are to conduct ourselves as men and women who run hard and fast after Jesus Christ. And we know the value of a good warning label, don't we? Um, you you want to have some fun? Just Google uh, uh, crazy warning labels and watch what comes up. I did that this week. Let me show you, tell you a couple of them that I found. One of them was a wheelbarrow that had a sticker on the side, and it said, not intended for highway use. <laughs> now, they've been in Upshur County. <laughs> right? I've seen some of y'all trying to get up 271 on a wheelbarrow, Okay. Here was another one I found. There was a stroller, this is true, had a sticker on the side, a stroller, 
And it said, remove the child before attempting to fold in place. Can you imagine how that customer service phone call would have gone? I can't fold it up and get it in the back of the truck. Ma'am, take the baby out. (laughs) Warning labels are important, aren't they? Well, listen, God's word gives a warning to his people on how we are to live within a culture and engage it. Uh, for our good and ultimately for his glory. Listen to what it says. You don't have to turn there just yet. In Romans chapter 2, the Apostle Paul writes to the church in Rome. These are brothers and sisters that are living in a culture running in great contradiction to God's rule. And this is what Paul says. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So, so listen, here's what Paul says, and he's talking to a group similar to our own. He's talking to some brothers and sisters that are trying to figure out their faith in the midst of a culture and a society that runs in great contradiction to the things of God. And Paul says, don't be conformed to the world. Don't let the world bend you so that you look like it, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may discern what is right before God. So listen, this is the command for us. That we're not to bend ourselves to the pattern of the world, but rather we are to be transformed by the renewing of our mind that we may discern what is good and acceptable, that we may figure out what it is that God has called us to do. How about this? When the Apostle Paul writes his second letter to his younger brother in the faith, when he writes to Timothy, Paul talks to Timothy. He's like, you've got to contend for the faith, Timothy. You've got to stand firm in the midst of a culture that is eroding biblical, godly truth. And this is what he says in 2 Timothy 1, 13 and 14. Follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. So listen, brothers and sisters, and in particular on Mother's Day, moms and dads and grandparents, guard the good deposit. Don't be conformed. Your kids are watching. They are learning. And so don't be conformed, but be transformed that you may discern and guard the good deposit which God has entrusted to us. Well, what is the good deposit, Pastor Connor? Okay, I'm glad you asked, and you didn't. I have the mic. (laughs) But go to Matthew chapter 19, because I want us to see what is the good deposit. Matthew chapter 19. We're going to start reading together in verse uh, number 3. Matthew uh, chapter 19. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, don't sweat it. We always put a copy of the Scriptures up on the screen behind me so that you can follow along. Matthew chapter 19. I'm going to give you a minute just so that you can turn there. And as you're getting there to Matthew chapter 19, starting in verse number 3, here's what's happening. Jesus is having a conversation uh, with the Pharisees. The Pharisees were a, a religious sect among the Jewish people. They were att- essentially the rule keepers trying to keep uh, the Jewish people under thumb. And they have added all these extra biblical rules and principles attempting to earn right standing before God. So, so this was a very religious group that is attempting to try to discern how they are to live out their religion in the midst of a culture that looks radically different from the way God has instructed for them to be. And and in this conversation, they're going to speak at Jesus in an attempt to trap him in a sociological, theological, cultural conundrum, but we're going to see that it's not going to work. Uh, This is a Matthew chapter 19, starting in verse number 3. If you're there, say, I got it. Here we go. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, 
Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Okay, so listen. They're having this conversation and they're attempting to draw Jesus into an argument by bringing up a cultural uh, uh, issue of the day. Okay? And he answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore... A man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but they are one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Now, here, here's what's interesting. I, I've had a number of conversations with people, especially dealing with some of the subject matter of the, uh, pertaining to the family. And I've had people say things like, well, Jesus never talked about that. Jesus never addresses the subject of homosexuality. Jesus never addresses the subject of transgenderism. And here's what I would say. While he didn't use those specific words, he absolutely dealt with that specific subject. So yes, he did. All you have to do is go back to your Bible and read it, and you will discover that to be true. Jesus, so when you have a conversation with a friend who follows Christ but is wavering on their conviction about God's truth and design for the family... Yes, Jesus addressed it. And here's what's interesting. Um, the reason why these Pharisees are not going to be able to get away with this attempt to draw Jesus off sides is because they're asking the wrong question. Um, I have five kids. I have a 12-year-old son. And uh, every time I'm going to go upstairs and check on the condition of my son's room, I have to pray with every ascending step because I'm not sure about what I'm going to encounter. So I'm just, I'm asking for a lot of grace before that door swings open, just because I don't know what it's going to be. A couple of weeks ago, I was up in Coleman's room, and uh, he had a bunch of laundry uh, that had been washed and folded for him, and it was, and he had taken it upstairs, and it was sitting in a chair. And he had other laundry, clean clothes that were laying all over the back of the chair. And there were just a few pieces of laundry that had somehow made their way to the bed. And when I looked at him, I said, son what are we doing here? And he thought I was pointing at the bed. And here's what he said. Well, I couldn't fit him on the chair. <laughs> He's actually smart. <laughs> I mean, now listen, can you imagine what must have gone on in his 12-year-old mind? Okay. At some point, Coleman's like, all right, how do I, how do I fix the chair so I, can get, so I can get my underwear and my socks to get, to get in there because it's already full? At some point, but it, he's asking the wrong question. Our clothes are supposed to go in the closet. That's the way it has been designed. So listen, let me tell you, culture is asking the wrong question. Culture is trying to ask us to deal with a specific nuance of this thing or of that thing. And when they ask Jesus, he takes them back to the original design. You're asking the wrong question. We're not going to stack. How can we stack more on this chair that isn't intended for this particular purpose, but rather what was the original purpose for the clothes and how were they intended to be put away? Jesus teaches God's design for the family from the very beginning. And, and I love this because he quotes from their Old Testament to the Pharisees that would have known it forward and backward. He quotes from Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, a text that these Pharisees themselves would have been most familiar with. And so, family, I think for you and I, it's worth taking a note. We can learn a thing or two from Jesus. When combating a culture which seeks to redefine something that they have not first defined, let us not in, uh, let's not engage them in the wrong question, but rather let's take them back to God's good design so that they might see how the Creator intended for things to work. 
And so with that as the backdrop of our conversation here today, I want to show you three things that Jesus explains about God's design for the family. If you're a note taker, let me encourage you to write some of this down. The first thing that Jesus explains about God's design for the family is this. Gender is not chosen, it is given. Gender is not chosen, it is given. Look again at what it says in verse 4. He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? So again, they're trying to draw him off sides and get him into a specific conversation about a specific nuance. And Jesus says, hang on, we're not going to figure out how to stack more on the chair. We're going to go and ask ourselves, how was, it, how was it designed and intended to work? Gender is not chosen. It is given. Now, this morning, I want to be as sensitive as I can as we teach this biblical truth because I very much believe in the reality of gender dysphoria. And if you're unfamiliar, let me explain. By definition, gender dysphoria is the conflict between a person's physical gender and the gender with which they identify. And this is a real thing. We have friends and families that are dealing with this thing. And as disciples of Jesus Christ, we cannot be guilty of vilifying or minimizing those who are battling with it. We just can't. But I want to be clear that gender dysphoria is not God's good design. God did not create male and female to be confused about how they best identify. Something has changed and corrupted God's very good design, Genesis 131, and made it to the condition where we find ourselves to be. So do I believe that people have struggle identifying themselves and, and struggling with their gender identity? Yes, but not because God designed it that way but because something has changed and moved us from how he intended for it to be. So listen, if you just go back to your Bibles, in the very beginning, the Bible says that when God created, the pinnacle of his creation was Adam and Eve. And God gave an instruction manual. He gave rules to follow. We've already talked about this morning. We've laughed and said, yes, we understand the value and significance of instruction. And God gave instruction for Adam and Eve and how they were to live and to steward and to enjoy the creation that he had made. But Adam and Eve rebelled against God and decided they did not need his instruction. And they decided they were going to go their own way instead. And as a result, in a moment, sin entered into the cosmos and fractured what God had made as very good. And as a result of the introduction of sin, we find ourselves and our world around us in a condition of brokenness. We're broken people. We have broken thinking. We have broken actions. We use broken language. Listen, this is the reality, and it's common to everyone everywhere. If I asked for a show of hands, and we were being honest and said, how many of you can attest to the reality of brokenness? Everyone in the room would put their hand up. This is where we, so listen, why wouldn't that brokenness show up in every area of our life? So the reality is God made us not to be confused, but we might find ourselves in a state of confusion because we are broken by sin. This is the reality of our world where we find ourselves today. But as followers of Jesus Christ, who are going to hold high the word of God and stand upon it as the authority of our lives, how are we then called to engage? Well, in his 1947 book entitled The Uneasy Conscience of Modern Fundamentalism, again, 1947, author Carl F.H. Henry wrote a response for his day 
that I believe we can draw from even now. He said this, and I quote, The message for a decadent modern civilization must ring with the present tense. We must confront the world now with an ethics to make it tremble and with a dynamic to give it hope. So family, here's what he's saying. We must engage our culture with grace and truth. So, we are never going to apologize or run as followers of Jesus Christ from what God has declared as true. But we are never going to speak God's truth apart from grace when we do it. It's grace and truth. If you just think about the Gospel of John, in chapter 1, verse 14, the Bible says, And the Word became flesh, and it dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Just a few verses later, in verse 17, the Bible's going to say that Moses came bringing the law, and Jesus came bringing what? Grace and truth. So when we engage our culture, listen, with God's truth, we cannot... We cannot be a people who do so apart from God's grace. The two are not mutually exclusive, but rather they are working together for the good of creation and the glory of God. This is how he intended for things to be. And listen, we see this most perfectly manifested in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Jesus never uh, 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 cowered back from what was needed as God's truth in any circumstance, in any moment. But he also never did that with a heavy hand, but rather in a gracious and tender way. And this must be the way that you and I engage a culture as well. We cannot be about finger wagging as much as we are about hand holding. We're not going to win the world to Christ. We're not going to influence others with what we believe to be God's truth by yelling at them on Facebook. This is not wise. And the Bible is going to speak about the necessity of wisdom when we engage. In Colossians chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, it says, Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. So, so, so listen, God's truth we stand upon, but it cannot be seen as a sharp stick in which we poke those who hold to a different conviction from it. God's truth must be uh, um, shared with God's grace. The two work in concert together, not in opposition to one another. And unfortunately, listen, let's just be honest this morning, the church hasn't always gotten this right. We have done a lot of finger wagging and not nearly enough hand holding with those who hold to a conviction that is different from our own. We will stand on God's truth. We don't run from that, but we must speak it with God's amazing grace. And the start of the Second World War, um, as Great Britain was preparing for an inevitable attack from Nazi Germany, the, the people woke up every day in, in a a state of confusion and panic. I mean, it was just permeating the entirety of the nation. They knew an attack was coming, and therefore the, every person in Great Britain was riddled with this anxiety and trepidation knowing of the inevitable that was on its way. And so the government of England got together and started game planning a way in which they could appropriately respond so that their people might have something to hold on to, and they could then figure out how they were going to get up and embrace each day. 
they came up with a phrase, and, and if you've spent any time around anyone from Great Britain, you know that it's, it's a little rigid and therefore it works, but it was something that they held on to um, that their country could grasp in an effort uh, uh, to be able to stand firm and to get up every day putting one foot before uh, the other. The phrase was, keep calm and carry on. Keep calm and carry on. So listen, brothers and sisters, let me just share with you what I believe. While our culture is going to continue to deviate from what we have seen as God's good design, look at me, none of it knocks Jesus Christ off his throne. None of it changes the reality of whether or not God loves us, every single one of us, has made perfect provision for us in the person of his son, Jesus Christ, that God can redeem any circumstance and any person from any sin, and that God will one day make all things new when Jesus Christ returns. None of it knocks him off of his throne. So how are we to engage? You ready? Keep calm and carry on. We're going to get up every day. We're going to love other people in the name of Jesus, and we're going to speak God's truth to them in love. That's what the calling for Christ followers always is. Let's get back to the text. I want to, see, I want to show you what Jesus Christ continued to teach in regards to God's good design for the family. Listen to what he says. And Pharisees came up to him again, and they tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What, therefore, God has joined together, let not man separate. Here's the second Uh, truth that Jesus teaches about God's design for the family. The the first is that uh, gender is not chosen, it is given. And and the second one is marriage is a covenant between one man and one woman for a lifetime. Marriage is a covenant between one man and one woman for a lifetime. Listen again to what the words of Jesus are according to verses 5 and 6. Therefore, A man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. One man, one woman in a covenant for a lifetime. But again, I want to be as sensitive as I can this morning to those who disagree with this conviction, maybe even yourself personally, or you have family and friends who disagree with it as well. Let's acknowledge the fact that same-sex attraction is a cultural normative for us today. Most of us have family or friends who are in same-sex relationships or who are attracted to someone of the same sex. Therefore, Same-sex marriage is going to be an issue that Christians, disciples of Jesus Christ, must engage our culture with grace and truth, as we mentioned before. And so let's start with grace. The church has not always done a good job of engaging this particular sin struggle, and we must own that. In an effort to deal with sin that has not always been understood or shared as commonly as it is today, the church has many times 
categorized this particular sin as being worse than others simply because it is the least comfortable. Many times, homosexuality has been categorically viewed as worse than others simply because it was misunderstood. This is wrong. All sin is an equal offense before a holy God. And while some sin will carry greater earthly consequences in its aftermath, it is bad theology to argue for one sin as a greater offense to God's holiness any more than another. And so, I want to say to all of you, if you are here today and you or someone you know has been wounded by the church or someone within it, because they have been heavy-handed in dealing with you or a loved one on the subject of same-sex attraction, I want to apologize for that. The church has historically not done as good a job as we need to in addressing this particular issue in love. And so if you know in this room there are enough of us here who have friends and family that have struggled with this particular issue, area of their life and you know that some have been wounded by the church i want to apologize for that we must do better and that is the need we have for god's grace but again we're gonna keep calm and carry on so we've got to stand on what god has declared to be true and god's truth is that marriage as our creator himself has defined it, is only between one man and one woman. Any other deviation from this ordered relationship cannot be called marriage according to the Bible. So again, you can have unions and relationships, but the institution of marriage, according to what we've read in God's word, is reserved for a covenant relationship between one man and one woman, not individuals of the same sex any more than individuals who would practice polygamy. It is one man and one woman in a covenant for a lifetime. And we've got to be better about addressing this in love, grace and truth, which leads me to the last thing that Jesus explained in regards to God's design for the family. Look again this time at, at verse 6. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Here's what I would say Jesus shares with us today, and that is this. Divorce is never God's best because marriage was his original design. Divorce is never God's best because marriage was his original design. So I'm going to be clear. Do I believe there is biblical grounds for someone to be divorced? Yes, I do. I believe there are rare occasions when a person has biblical grounds to be divorced. But I never believe that divorce is God's best because I believe marriage was always God's intended first. Are you with me? So listen, not to, not to demonize anyone who has uh, walked in divorce or experienced divorce and grown up in a family of 
uh, divorce. What I am saying is, is that it is never God's best primarily because marriage was his design first. But I'm sensitive to all of those who are in the room, friends and family, including some who I know very well that have dealt with divorce in their own life and in their own family of origin. And I don't in any way intend for this to make a person feel bad or to question anyone's personal relationship with God simply because of their marriage and family circumstance. In fact, I will tell you unequivocally, some of the godliest men and women that I know and that Mary and I love have been divorced. So a person's past does not dictate where they are in regard to their relationship with the Lord Jesus now. Our God is one of forgiveness and redemption. And if a failed marriage is a part of someone's story, we trust that God alone can give the grace for anyone to overcome any consequence that has come as a result of it, period. If God couldn't rescue and redeem anyone from any divorce or tragic marriage circumstance, then he would cease to be God. But I just happen to know that he is in the business of redeeming all things. But I want to be honest about God's design for marriage because that's how Jesus teaches God's plan for the family. And God didn't design marriages to fail any more than he designed for people to be gender confused. Sometimes sin carries consequences. And sometimes those consequences can wreck a marriage and a family quite severely. Which then, listen, is the reason why Jesus Christ must be the center of every marriage and family. So I, I, do, a, a, I do premarital counseling, I do marriage counseling as a, as a part of what God has entrusted to me in shepherding his church. This week I did some premarital counseling for a sweet couple um, that's going to be married this summer. Sometimes as a part of that, I'll have them fill out an intake form, which just gives me a little bit of information about them. It tells me a little bit of background and story so that I can read and be prepared for the first conversation we're going to have. On that intake form, there's room for, an, uh, for you to indicate an area of your life where you know you need to grow. Maybe an area of a particular sin struggle, you know, pride or anger or lust or, or anxiety or depression or just seasons of trauma or circumstances of difficulty that you have endured, which might contribute to some of the reason why we're having the conversation that we're having. So this particular couple uh, brought me their intake forms. It was great. And I read through his and, and uh, he had indicated some areas where he knew he needed to grow. And, and so we're going to be able to take that information and be able to talk about how some of those tendencies are going to influence his relationship with his bride-to-be. And then I read through hers. And do you know how many boxes she checked when it talked about the areas of your life where you know you need to grow? Zero which then I informed him that he was marrying Jesus and there were now officially two sinless people in all of human history. And so as we had our conversation, I said, listen, this is going to be a problem for you, but evidently for her, it's just not. And so you're going to have to say, I'm sorry a lot. And she's going to walk on water. It's just going to be great. <laughs> but listen, it's true of every relationship, marriage or otherwise, the closer you get to someone, the more you're going to sin against someone because that's what we do. Sinners sin. And in the context of covenant marriage, you have a sinner who is marrying a sinner and they are going to sin against one another more than anyone else for the rest of their lives. 
This is true of parenting relationships, of sibling relationships, of co-worker relationships, of neighbor. I mean, the closer you are in proximity to someone, the greater the need you have for Jesus to get in the middle of that relationship because the more often sin is going to show up in response to it. And so if you don't have God's grace in the middle of a marriage, then when sin shows up and a husband sins against a wife or a wife against her husband, they are left to their own devices and best efforts to try to resolve that matter in and of themselves. And listen, you're not good enough to do that on your best day, which is the reason why Jesus Christ showed up. But listen, don't take my word for it. Listen, biblically, we believe God's design for the family is absolutely best. It's clear and explicit in his word. But I want to tell you, sociologically, all the proof is in the pudding. Sociologically, scientists are telling us that the nuclear family, as God designed it, even though that's not how they say it, is best for human flourishing. There was a report written entitled, Why Marriage Matters, 30 Conclusions from the Social Sciences, It uh, argued for multiple benefits of marriage, including the advantages for children. And listen, lest you are tempted to believe, oh, well, pastor pulled a report from Focus on the Family. Let me tell you who authored this report. There were multiple people collaborating, family scholars, some from UC Berkeley, others from Rutgers University, some from the universities of Texas, Virginia, Minnesota, Chicago, Maryland, and Washington. And here's what they found. That children who lived with their own married parents, in general, live longer and live healthier lives physically and psychologically. They do better in school. They're more likely to graduate from high school and to attend college. They're less likely to live in poverty. They're less likely to be in trouble with the law. They're less likely to drink alcohol or do drugs. They're less likely to be violent or sexually active. They're less likely to be victims of sexual or physical violence, and they are more likely to have a successful marriage when they are older. So it almost seems that the sciences are saying there's a design that might be best. Sarah McClanahan of Princeton University, who is a leading scholar on how family form impacts child well-being, explains in her extensive investigations, and I quote, if we were asked to design a system for making sure that children's basic needs were met, we would probably come up with something quite similar to the two-parent family ideal. Such a design, in theory, would not only ensure that children had access to the time and money of two adults, it would also provide a system of checks and balances that promote quality parenting. The fact that both adults have a biological connection to the child would increase the likelihood that the parents would identify with the child and be willing to sacrifice for that child And it would reduce the likelihood that either parent would abuse the child. Now listen, she may not know it or may not admit it, but this Princeton University professor is arguing for God's good design for the family. It is explicitly clear. And so, let's not let the culture draw us off sides And let's not try to answer the wrong question. We're not interested in stacking more stuff on the chair that isn't intended to hold it. 
we're interested in feel, figuring out what was its intended and created purpose. When we allow the designer to also be the definer, then we can enjoy what has been created as it was intended. The natural byproduct then is human flourishing and a world that looks more like it was created and intended by God to be. Listen, just think about this. Before you had nations, you had cities. Before you had cities, you had regions. Before there were regions, there were communities. Before there were communities, there were villages. Before there were villages, there was a gathering of families together. Before there was a gathering of families together, there was a family that started it first. Human flourishing, the good of all people, is directly and inextricably linked to God's design for the family. It is how we flourish as a people because it is the way our author and designer created and intended for things to be. But listen, I know this morning, just because your facial expressions have said it all, some of you hold to a different conviction than what I have shared with you from God's Word. And that's okay. I am not in any way attempting to change your mind. I can't do that. That's, I leave that work up to the Spirit of God. But I'm going to unapologetically preach God's truth and stand upon it. But prayerfully, what you've heard is me do so from a position of His grace as well. I've said this before. I'll say it again. I'm a sick man telling a room full of sick people where there is good medicine. And so I would say this. If you're here today, and maybe some of what Jesus described as God's design for the family is not what you have experienced, it is not the way you grew up, maybe it is not even where you find yourself to be right now. Look up here at me. Where the ideal is lacking in your life, God's grace abounds. Where, where the ideal is coming up short, the grace of Jesus Christ abounds for you. It abounds for me. And so there is not a single wound that you carry or a single struggle that you have or a single conviction that you're wrestling with even now where God's grace cannot show up and meet you where you are. Not one. You grew up in a family of divorce, there's grace. You've been a product of divorce, there's grace. You're in the middle of a divorce, there's grace. You've got a child who's struggling with an identification, God's grace. You battle yourself with an attraction to the same sex, there's grace. You got a friend or a family member who refuses to conform to God's word on this particular issue, there's grace. Where the ideal is lacking, the grace of God abounds. And so, look at me. Keep calm and carry on. We're going to stand on God's truth. We're going to share it with God's grace.
we have seen his glory, glory as of the Son from the only Father, full of grace and truth. If you're here today and you would like to pray with someone, maybe because of an issue in your family, there is a relationship that's been damaged, there's some distance that has shown up, maybe you're carrying around a wound from something that you endured in the family that you were raised in or the blended family that you're trying to shape and mold even now. Our staff was going to be here with our spouses. And in just a moment, when I pray and say amen, we're going to have an opportunity to worship and respond. And if you would like prayer this Mother's Day, we would like to pray with you. It will be our privilege and honor to just ask the God of the universe to intervene and to heal and to overcome whatever it is that you happen to be walking through. God has a perfect design for us, but we're an imperfect people who are trying to figure it out. So we're going to stand on what we know to be true. And we're going to ask God to give us the grace to endure whatever consequences we suffer as a result of what is wrong. Let's pray. Father, in Jesus' name, we ask that you would just minister to us, speak through us, God, and that in these next few moments of prayer and response, we would be honest about the areas in our life where we know we need to grow. So, Lord, I love you, and I thank you for loving us, and I pray uh, that we would be honest as a family of faith about the areas um, where we carry wounds or where there's healing needing to be done, and that for every person here in, in the room today, whether they stand on these convictions or wrestle with them, uh, give us the boldness, God, to seek you in the middle of them. We ask this in the name that is above every name. In Jesus' name we pray.